It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio. Flavored with a dash of humor. Welcome to intelligent, irreverent talk about plants and the planet they grow on. Your questions, comments, and participation are always welcome on Facebook and Instagram at The Mike Novak Show and at Mike Now on Twitter. Good planets are hard to find. Temperate zones and tropic climes. And true currents and thriving seas. Wind blowing through breathing trees. Strong ozone and safe sunshine. Well, good planets are hard to find. Good planets are in the main. Brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts. Every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. Jet streams, perfect air. And here they are, Peggy Malecki and Mike Nova. Good planets are in the main. Right. And in addition to Basil the dog and Lagata the cat, what I really want to show are 10,000 sparrows in my backyard. Ah, well, I was going to ask, are the birds back? Are you kidding me? They cleaned out an entire tube in about four hours yesterday. <laughs> I can't. We have literally Hungry little birds. dozens, dozens and dozens of those things in uh, my yard in mm-hmm. certainly, you know, and then what happens is every couple of days it snows. And so they, uh, it covers everything up and then you put more in the feeder and then they go nuts in the feeder. Of course, the squirrels are climbing on the feeder and now I get the stray pigeon that comes in there, you know, and mm-hmm. we're talking to folks today from the wild things Com- conference, a 2021 wild things conference. In fact, let's, uh, Let's give that a give that a ding. Boy, we haven't. I don't think we used the dings at all last week. Um, and uh, you know, these are the people who see real birds in their yards or out in nature. And I see ten thousand sparrows. And now this week, twenty thousand sparrows is what it seems like to me. They gotta eat too. It's cold uh, out there. It's uh, cold out there. No matter whether it's a sparrow, a pigeon, a squirrel. I know. I know. Uh, but what I don't get what we call uh, a, a large variety uh, of these birds. So maybe You're that's... You're getting more, though. That's, you weren't getting birds before. What do you mean? Like, I'm not getting any... At, I wasn't getting... I've always gotten sparrows. So, I don't know. Well, we'll, we'll ask these folks why in uh, Logan Square in Chicago I get... 10,000 sparrows. The And, and, and I'm two, watching a downy woodpecker right now. See, there you are. Come on. End of show. Goodbye. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Well, I'm watching a downy. Oh, look. Here's a bald eagle. It's in my backyard, and uh, it's at the feeder. Okay, great. Thanks. That Thanks, would be so. trouble. Uh, it, it would be. Uh, and Scott sh- Jamieson says, get better seed. Uh, get better seed? Oh, and I didn't Ooh. turn. No. I don't think that, well, maybe that is it. It's possible. And thank you, Scott, because I didn't realize I don't have the uh, my chat box up here, yeah. so I can't see what's and, going on. You've got. Hey, good morning, everybody. We're getting lots of people checking in from all over, getting happy Valentine's Day messages. And we're getting. Happy big. Valentine's Day to you, Amos, as well. Uh, yeah. And 
Dan, Dan Costas says, happy Valentine's Day. So a few of those will come in in just a second. And, of course, Basil the dog is going to uh, wish everybody yeah, happy Valentine's Day. I'm sorry. Day. It's uh, too cold on the porch to have him up there. <laughs> Put him by the Shelly bird feeder. Shelly said she's got a red-bellied woodpecker. Well, thank you. Okay, I tell you what. Why don't you all just write in and tell me about all the wonderful birds that come to your yard, and I'll tell you about all the sparrows. I can't even find a wood or no a tree sparrow that was that got described in an article in the Trib by your friend Cheryl Devore the other week. And I went, okay, there must be one of those there. No, I don't see anything like that. So I get ten thousand sparrows They're and in my like yard. A, and like two cardinals and um, a pigeon and a partridge in a pear tree. Uh, welcome to the show, everybody. As I mentioned, we're going to be talking about the Wild Things Conference today. Uh, if you don't know what that is, you need to, because it's a. I'm not sure there's there's anything like it uh, like that anywhere. Oh, right. And Shelley reminds us it's the Great Backyard Bird Count this weekend. Yeah, we kind of missed uh, letting people know well, about that last week, but it, it finishes. So up you're today. counting sparrows. Yeah, I, that's right. And I can count 10,000 of them, and they'll add 10,000 sparrows to the list. Um, but um, if, if you're not familiar with wild things, uh, you should be, uh, because it is uh, pretty unique. It's uh, a couple of weekends. It's virtual this year. It used mm -hmm. to be we'd all show up in, under one big roof, and there'd be hundreds and hundreds of people. And we may get back to that next year. Boy, I sure hope so. Um but uh, or maybe not. Maybe they like it better. Uh, for, you know, I think some organizations are going to stick with uh, their virtual meetings. They they might like those mm -hmm. better. Uh, but this one is uh, Friday, February nineteenth to Sunday, February twenty first. That's the first weekend, and then the twenty sixth to the twenty eighth. Um, and it's all online. Go to wildthingscommunity.org. We will tell you more about that. But uh, that is how we start the show, and then later on. Our buddy, Charlie Nardozzi. Uh, will Charlie. Be, Charlie. Hey, Charlie. Nardozzi will be here to talk about no-dig gardening. Um, and that is, uh, as as it says, as the book advertises, uh, put the shovel away. All right? And just pile stuff out there, and you're going to create great soil and create great biology in your soil. It's stuff I've been talking about for years on this program. Um, you know the tiller, that tiller you got? Scrap it. Just get it out of there. Uh, you, you need to use a tiller maybe once in your life. If, if you've got hard pay. If you got asphalt in your backyard, put the tiller. To, well, actually, you need a couple of teenagers with sledgehammers there, but... <laughs> Uh, but if you got a hard pan, you use a tiller once and then then forget it. Then just start putting organic matter down. And then when mm -hmm. you say the word organic matter, people's heads explode. What's organic matter? Well, we'll explain uh, all that today when Charlie Nardozzi. Nardozzi. Uh, Nardozzi. Uh, I'm just watching some of these comments go by. That's what I'm laughing at. So What are they, what are they saying? Uh, oh, uh, no, all right. Never mind then. Let's... People are messing with you on birds. Oh, great. Oh, so, uh, all right. So they're going to tell me all the wonderful birds that they have in their yard. Um, let's see. Well, I only see the ivory-billed woodpecker. If there's, oh, wait, there's more coming in. Okay. Uh, squirrels ate all the bird seed I put up. There you go. There, There's a guy, Amos. Thank you, Amos. That's, that's my uh, 
lane. That's the lane I'm in where the squirrels come and they eat all of the bird seed. Uh, and you chase them. You know what I did this morning? I chased a squirrel away. I opened the back door and they usually jump off the feeder. I have this little pot where I, I dug up a bunch of bulbs mm-hmm. last summer that I was going to replant and of course forgot to replant all of them. So ah, there's some, so there's soup. some daff, yeah, daffodils and some allium and they all, they all froze and, um, and now they're real light white and they ever, so I, I throw them at the squirrels. <laughs> To get them out of there, we got to have a little threat to, to to keep away from the feeder. <laughs> it's not going to hurt them. That's the thing. It's just a little 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 bulb there, and, and you know they and and what I'm gonna, I'm tempted to say is try the daffodil the daffodil bulb, but you know squirrels don't like daffodils or allium, so uh, what are you going to do? You squirrels, get off my lawn! You squirrels, right? Exactly. Hey, stop putting salt on my on my driveway there. All right. <laughs> Uh, I'm just the cranky old guy in the neighborhood. I think we should uh, actually try to get to the show and bring in all of our guests who are just very patiently waiting there. And these are all folks who are involved uh, in the uh, Wild Things, the 2021 Wild Things Conference. Let me give you, uh, I'll do this to make uh, the PR guy, Brandon, happy because as all of our guests know, if you don't make the PR guy happy, there's no point in even uh, going back and doing your presentation because you will hear about it. Um, so, again, February 19th to 28th, uh, it, there's two parts to the conference. The, each weekend is Friday, Saturday, Sunday. There are 50 sessions, 50. And this has always been an issue with Wild Things is uh, these sessions uh, – a lot of them ran concurrently, and folks were always trying to figure out which session do I go to. How can I, how can I see that one? And now they're all separate, which I think is a really good thing this year. Um, and and by the way, you can go to uh, wildthingscommunity.org, or you can go to my website, mikenovak.net. I've got the link to where you register. Each part, each weekend, three days of sessions is fifteen bucks. Come on, folks. The last great bargain in America. Um, the whole conference is only 30 bucks, And uh, and you're going to get hours and hours and hours of entertainment. Of, uh, and inf- learning. Info- and knowledge. Ta- learning-tainment. Um, the theme is uh, staying connected through nature in the Chicago region. Um, as I mentioned, I'm not sure there's anything like this across the country. Uh, topics, uh, and I wrote, uh, the, the ones I wrote, see, are different from the ones that uh, that uh, Brandon wrote. Uh, what I put on my website to ch- kind of pique people's interest is, here's some of the things you'll, you'll find out, some of the, the seminars. How COVID is helping to improve the local food system for people, the land, and the economy. The Oak Ecosystem Recovery Plan. Northern Illinois Dragonflies. All about bats, singing insects, la di da, and they tap dance too. Uh, Nature themed board games, really. Uh, sourcing climate resilient seed. Our buscular mycorrhizal fungi. Thank you very much. Uh, art and nature for veterans. Large scale fire management. Monarchs are for everyone. Question mark. And uh, contemplative. Poetry, a way into restoration. So, 
that is an idea of just how widespread these these topics are. And the topics we're, ta- we're talking about this morning aren't even on that list. So let's get right to it because I've got photos. We've got things to talk about. Let's go to the upper right-hand corner and our buddy Trevor Edmondson. Every time we turn around, Trevor's on the show again. Um, why is that, Trevor? Uh, I just like to keep learning and doing new topics all the time, it seems like. So, uh, last yeah. time, Almost exactly a year, yeah. Yeah, and the last time we talked to you, you were with, uh, I believe, the Wetlands Inif- Initiative. Yeah. Uh, and now you're with the Nature Conservancy in Indiana. What are you doing there? Uh, I am the site manager for Kinky Sands uh, in Indiana. Um, so if you've, we got our bison over there, and we've got about 8,000-acre prairie in Savannah. So I spend most of my time there working, managing that site. All right, so that's contestant number one, uh, Trevor Edmondson. Let's go to the lower left, and Alexis Smith, uh, who is an urban ecologist and conservationist who focuses on birds. Um, you recently got your Ph.D. from the University of Illinois at Chicago. Welcome to the show, Alexis. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a it's a pleasure. Um, so you're going to be talking this morning, speaking of birds, Maybe you can explain why I have 10,000 sparrows in my backyard and pretty much nothing else. Uh, uh-oh. And, and Tre- Trevor's up there. He's uh, – what, what, what's that, Trevor? <laughs> well, it's, it's the Peterson Guide to Sparrows of North America. You are mentioning out 10,000. You might, you might have a bunch of interesting yeah. species of sparrows. They're actually kind of hard to identify, but um, – Yeah, they are. The you might have some – You could have some tree sparrows there that you're just not seeing. Uh-huh. <laughs> So, uh, Alexis, is, you're doing a talk um, uh, about birds and the Chicago River and how the, t- the two can get along because, from what I understand, if you uh, have lived in Chicago for any length of time, you know that uh, the, the river didn't get along with critters at all for, for decades, did it? Right, yeah. The Chicago River has experienced a lot of changes over the years, and some of those substantial changes have excluded certain birds based on their natural history. So um, <clears throat> things like marsh birds can't really live in areas where the sides of the river have become just, you know, concrete hardscapes and things yeah. like that. But I'm, yeah, I mostly talk about um, the Chicago River and birds and all the various urban greening projects uh, along the north branch of the Chicago River and how um how we can accommodate um a diversity of birds and still uh make it home for a diversity of people as well mm-hmm. yeah and industry and i guess other sports and everything else <laughs> right yeah a lot of stuff is happening and intersecting with the river and that's not likely to change anytime soon so how to optimize um, bird diversity in the north branch of the Chicago River and still have all of these human needs met. Right. Uh, And maybe we'll even, if we have a second, get into uh, the development uh, uh, on the the north side there. Don't get me started on it and what it could have been and what it's going to turn into um, are two very different things. Uh, let's back up just a second. Trevor, we, we, we talked about what Alexis is going to be uh, presenting. Uh, Trevor, what are you presenting at uh, Wild Things? Yeah, so 
um, I'm going to be talking about sheet lighting 101, and that <laughs> that is foremost um, on everyone's mind. By the way, yeah, sure. It so basically, you're taking a sheet out into a prairie or the woods, and you're putting a light on it, and you're recording and viewing all the insects that come. And it's a wonderful experience and a great way to connect to nature. And so that's I'm going to be talking about that. Okay, we'll we'll get to that, and we'll even show a photo of uh, of how you do that. But now let's skip right below you uh, to Nigel Pittman, uh, who is from the Field Museum, the Keller Science Action Center. Good morning, Nigel. Morning, everyone. Um, great to have you here, and you are doing something. Whereas uh, Trevor and Alexis will be doing live presentations, one of the things that's happening at Wild Things this year is the idea that there are on-demand presentations, and you're one of them, and it's about iNaturalist, which I just heard about a few months ago from a friend of mine who's a, who's a big fan. Um, Mac, thank you for that. Uh, tell us about uh, the video that will be showing on-demand during the Wild Things Conference. Right, so iNaturalist is this community science uh platform that's just exploding in popularity in the Chicago region and around the world, a place where anyone, anywhere can post observations of plants and animals that they've seen, and other people can see those observations, comment on them, identify the species. Um, and this thing has been growing so fast in the Chicago region that uh, a couple of colleagues of mine and I have been looking at the data the last, couple, the last year or so trying to figure out how useful it's going to be for conservation. And so the talk that was recorded is given by Katie Heller, who's at the University of Chicago. Uh, mm -hmm. She, Mark Johnson, and I have done this uh, analysis of uh, iNaturalist data for the last 10 years, so from 2011 through 2020, for the Chicago Wilderness region. And she's reporting some really cool findings from that data set. All right. and. Uh Basil agrees with that. Uh, in fact, he's he's itching to see that presentation. Uh, so let, let's go back up to uh, to Trevor and start with you. We'll just sort of work our way through this. Um, and uh, at some point uh, during this, I will also uh, remark again about uh, the different ways you can get involved. But let me just tell you, it's thirty bucks for the whole two weekends. Uh, each part is fifteen dollars. Go to wildthingscommunity.org or go to, or go to my website, mikenovak.net, M-I-K-E-N-O-W-A-K.net. Look for this week's blog. You can go right up to the top of the page. It says blog. You click on it or uh, go to the home page, and Kathleen's got a link to the blog there right underneath the video that is showing right at this very second. So, uh, Trevor, tell us uh, uh, how you got interested in this. What are you, what are you learning when you take your, your sheet lighting out? Well, I'm, you know, I'm learning the things that are unseen and, you know, how deeply connected nature is. Um, you know, I, I first discovered this um, when I was with Wetlands Initiative um, a handful of years ago. We did a bio blitz at the Dixon Waterfowl Refuge, and we invited this guy, Frank Hitchell, from the Peoria, Peoria Academy of Sciences. And I was you know, just on staff that day helping, you know, make sure everything went smooth. And I joined him at night with his sheet. He had a generator out in the middle of the woods and an extension cord and a sheet and a notepad and a camera. And 
I thought, okay, this is going to be fun, um, but I wasn't sure what it, what was going to show up, and I have never. I've never seen so many insects in my life at, at one time. And it was just incredible the amount of diversity that I'm missing during the day. Um, you know, a lot of moths, a lot of beetles, a lot of other insects that I had never even considered before um, in these, you know, in these habitats that I'm working during the day, but not actually, you know, seeing the full scope of the diversity. So that's sort of where I got started with that. All right. Well, let's let's go right to. Uh, that installation, uh, and this is uh, what it looks like. Can you explain what you've got there? Yeah, actually, the, the, this is an Indian Ridge Marsh uh, in Chicago, um, and I'm wearing the same shirt. Look at that. Yeah, um, Mothapalooza. Right. Yeah, I was going to notice that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this, when I first met Frank, I was trying to, this is sort of a copy of his setup, um, a little little bit different here and there, but um I, the Wetlands Initiative, we were doing restoration work with the Park District and Great Lakes Audubon um, at Indian Ridge Marsh. And actually, that was the last time I talked to you guys was at a table at Indian Ridge Marsh. Right. Um, the Thysmia hunt. Yeah, the Thysmia hunt, right. I think Thysmia, oh, Thysmia, right. Um, but, but yeah, so we, we did a public outreach thing uh, at night. You know, Indian Ridge Marsh, it's sort of surrounded by a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of industrial things there. It's a sort of this old, you know, a lot of slag and stuff at the, at the site. Uh, it's, it's on the, on the mend, but it was sort of an interesting thing to see, you know, what species or how many, you know, were there any diversity left, you know, of insects that were coming through there. And yeah, I think we documented, uh, man, it was like 60 or so species there that came to our light, but it wasn't, mm-hmm. um, what was exciting is that like 30 people showed up when we advertised it. Uh, and it was like <laughs> so the, families. The, 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 you know, your, your sheet attracted people as well. So that those are just different species. Yeah. Uh, so, so what, what you're looking at though, is just a, a typical sheet that you'd find at, um, you know, I think I, I bought it at target or, or Meyer or something. And, you know, I got, it's like a quilt stand that I have there, um, that, you know, for displays for quilts and it's got some, some clamps and you clamp it up there. I got some sandbags so it doesn't blow over. And then, you can see the light bulb there, which is a um, the one would, I'm using. Would you there point that out? Thing. I'm having a hard time seeing the light bulb. Um, it, where in the photo is that? Oh, oh, so I see. see. It's, on the, uh, it's, it's on the, on the right, tripod. It's on the it's right on the tripod. side. Okay, across. Yeah. yeah. All right. So the tripod, yeah, it's it's got this light fixture mounted on it, um, and it's a it's a mercury vapor bulb, which um, in particular, it's a self ballasted mercury vapor bulb, which means that you don't need a special receptacle for it. Um, it's able to, you know, screw into a, a, a standard uh, light bulb socket. Um, they're more expensive, um, but but it put, put out this wide range of, uh, of light wavelengths, and it, th- that seems to be what researchers use um, most of the time with these mercury vapor bulbs um, to get the highest diversity. It's very bright. You can't stare at it. That's why it's, it's, it's distance away from the sheet. The insects come to the light. They they get kind of confused because um, we're interrupting their um, sort of their their cycle there, and they land on the sheet um, or on the ground, which is why I have that tarp on the ground. And then we just you know look at look at them and and document them and fo- photograph them. And then I usually try to upload them to iNaturalist, which is uh, um, it should be interesting to hear more about Nigel's presentation. Yeah, I, well, I have a couple of real quick questions about this. I don't want to get too bogged down in it, but um, I, I assume that the light is not 
terribly intense because you don't really want that much intensity in a light like that. And I assume, and I can see you, you have a shield on the light, so it's not going straight up uh, in, um, into uh, into the sky because we got folks. You know, we 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 talk about light pollution on this show yep. all the time, and I imagine so. The light you want to use is is kind of mild, just enough to uh, draw an insect, but it's not glaring There's, and uh, obtrusive. It depends on what you're after. Certainly, my neighbors, uh, you know, in my in my house um, would prefer me to use a a dimmer light. Um, that light in particular is pretty bright. The shield on it is for rain. Um, if if any moisture gets on that, um, ah. it'll just burn burn out the light completely, mm-hmm. and you're you're out fifty bucks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, um, but if if taken care of, you know, taken care of, that bulb can last you ten years. Also, um, it, you know, you can use black lights as well. They they get uh, you'll get a lot of researchers using that. Um, some folks will use LED lights um, in my backyard where I'm surrounded, you know, by houses here. I do use my black light fairly often because it is less intrusive. Um, but you, the mercury vapor bulb is bright. It it it, um, it can pull insects in from a long ways away. And some folks do, t- you know, sort of have it more elevated um, to where you're getting some of those insects that may be flying in the canopy, where you're mm-hmm. sort of pointing that light upwards. Um, so it, it's sort of what you're depends on what you're after. Um, I really like. Um, other some other folks approaches like Jim Steffen who I think is retiring at the Botanic Garden he uses very low powered LED lights um, because he's really interested in um, the moths within a certain very specific region of of his his stewardship site um, whereas I'm with this bright light I'm trying to you know get get a encompass and pull as many species from uh, as far away as possible and speaking of species um this says uh, spiny oakworm moth. Uh, is that yep. uh, one wow. of the where, – where did you find this? So this was at Kankakee Sands, actually, uh, last summer. Um, we, we do have a black oak savanna there. Um, there's a few other oak species. So there, this, is a tr- this is one that does feed on oaks. The caterpillar is a crazy-looking one, and it, it landed on the ground near my sheet um, on one night in July. And uh, But I, I, I wanted to highlight this one and, and another one just – you know, I think most people, when I, they think about moths and especially some of these other insects, that they're just sort of these boring colors and they're just not really that exciting. Yeah, here's another crocus geometer moth. Um, you know, butterflies, you know, we, we get they get a lot of publicity, but really they're just specialized. <laughs> they moths. get all the press. <laughs> the butterflies get yeah, all the press. Just, but you're right. Moths are doing a lot of the heavy lifting, aren't they? Well, and they're, they're, they're doing a lot of heavy lifting. You know, in, um, in Illinois, there's... Uh, maybe 150, 160 butterfly species. In um, as far as moths go, there's like 2,300 species that are known from Illinois. So the diversity is incredible, and you never know what's going to show up at your sheet at night, which is, you know, sort of the adventure. Nature comes to you, which is really fun. And I'm what I'm hoping to do with this uh, presentation is to highlight, you know, this sort of uh, community engagement aspect of it, um, as well as the scientific. You know, that you can get people inspired. Um, you know, one, I have this, um, one of my favorite books is called Discovering Moths by Oh, John. you're going to make me jump out of here. Okay, let's yeah. see if we can get yeah. to that book. What, what's the book here? Okay. All right, so Discovering Moths by John Himmelman uh, was one of my, 
sort of intro to this um, where he he wrote sort of about a year on uh, of mothing. And one thing he says is, when darkness sets in, we retreat to our well-lit homes to wait it out. But it has been my experience that once a person discovers just a smattering of what can be found in the darkness, the sun setting becomes a prelude to an exciting part of the daily cycle, a prelude to discovery. And I have certainly found that to be the case, and it's always exciting you know, you just never know what's going to show up, and it could be really something really rare. All right, and um, then you last night at the very last, and we're going to have to take a break here, but let's do this yep. quickly. Last night you sent me another photo because I talked to, when I talked to the three of you when we were setting up this uh, uh, the sound in the video here. Um, I talked about a photographer for uh, National Geographic's Photo Arc A R K, uh, who's photographed eleven thousand uh, insects. Wow. Um, I don't know if they're just insects. It's 11,000. Uh, he's documenting every species living in zoos and wildlife sanctuaries around the world. And the 11,000th was a moth, kind of a nondescript moth. And apparently uh, scientists have known about it for 130 years, and no one had ever photographed it before. Hmm. And then you said, tell that story. Uh, and then show this photograph. Boy, all, all these guys popping up. Let's get those out of the way. Um, and uh, what is this? Yeah, so a couple years ago, um, this is called the, the uh, Dichigris relica, or the, the relic moth. And it is one that we found uh, doing some sheet lighting as a, with volunteer group at Morton Arboretum. Um, they have one of the oldest uh, restorations there, the Schulenberg Prairie. Uh, but this moth um, has only, we, we found it, we didn't know what we had until someone from Cornell University identified it for us on uh, iNaturalist. And we started looking into it, and there's only like 15 occurrences known for this moth across the Great Lakes region. It, it's only, it's sort of found in the Great Lakes area, um, but there's only like, you can only find a handful of pictures and only 15 like known sightings of it. So it was really incredible. Um, and without iNaturalist, I would not have known that that's what species it was. Um, it's a prairie drop seed uh, specialist, so it's caterpillar ah. feeds on the seed head, the prairie drop seed, which is, you know, generally tied to remnant prairies and habitat. Um, you know, we do put um, drop seed in a lot of the restorations, but this moth and caterpillar v rarely venture very far from where it was born, basically. So it's sort of stuck in these remnant um, prairies. So it was really interesting um, to come across that and exciting for everyone involved. And so, Nigel, uh, we're giving a ding to iNaturalist. Uh, so once again, iNaturalist comes through, and, and citizen scientists uh, are able to, uh, to get that information out so that uh, Trevor can uh, identify this moth. All right, we need to take a, a, a short break here. Um, we're talking about the Wild Things Conference 2021. Uh, your comments are welcome. Go to our various social media, type them in. They show up here. We'll answer questions if you've got any, but we need to get to Alexis. We need to get to Nigel. It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki, and we'll be right back. 
At this time of year, we spend a lot of time indoors with our plants, so help them thrive. The plants you're viewing were treated with Leafzyme, a foliage spray designed to activate beneficial microbes already present on the leaves. A spritz every few weeks promotes growth-enhancing microorganisms that process dust and other particles into nutrition that indoor plants can absorb through their leaves for beautiful and vigorous growth. Go to blazing-star.com and check out their BioGarden line for home gardeners. My name is Megan Kosensky and I'm a plant health care specialist and a grounds person at Bartlett Tree Experts. It's no secret that the world of arboriculture is a male-dominated industry, but there is a fearless group of women out there that are determined to change that and I'm really proud to be one of those women. Bartlett has been really great about recognizing any kind of roadblocks for different genders, different races, people of different nationalities, and just kind of taking a bulldozer to all of those roadblocks. Every day that I go to work, I find something new that I love about what I do. Every tree needs a champion. From small boat fishermen to your dinner table with safe, free, no-contact delivery, Sitka Salmon Shares brings premium wild Alaska seafood to your door. They're a community-supported fishery offering shares just like your local CSA. All fish is wild-caught in season with respect for the limits of the ocean. Line-caught and traceable to their fleet. Use promo code NOVAK25 for $25 off the first month of a share. Go to SitkaSalmonShares.com slash N-O-W-A-K. You can help slow climate change in 2021 by composting. And you don't even need a backyard. By composting communally in multi-unit buildings across Chicagoland, Collective Resource Compost has diverted 7,000 tons of food scraps since 2010. CRC brings you a fresh 5-gallon bucket or a 32-gallon neighbor tote with each pickup. You fill it with organic matter, they swap it out, and get it to a commercial composting operation. Fight climate change. Go to collectiveresource.us. Not even a worldwide pandemic can stop the One Earth Film Festival, especially in its 10th anniversary season. The Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki is proud to have been part of 10 years of inspiring change. And once again, the event is online this year. Leading up to the festival, we're showing you trailers of some of the great films that they'll be presenting this year. Today's film is Kiss the Ground. And yes, that is Woody Harrelson narrating. There's so much bad news about our planet, it's overwhelming. Truth is, I've given up. This is the story of a simple solution, a way to heal our planet. The solution is right under our feet, and it's as old as dirt. All of our soils that are under chemical conventional agriculture are almost completely devoid of microorganisms. Modern agriculture was not designed for the betterment of the soil. Fossil fuels are by no means the only thing that is causing climate change. When we damage soils, carbon goes back to the atmosphere. But when we destroy soil, it releases carbon dioxide. Biosequestration is using plants, trees, and techniques of grazing and farming to capture carbon and store it in the soil. 
We can fix a lot of our climate issues to be bring the CO2 down into a living plant and put it back into the soil where it belongs. Plants working with soil microorganisms, it seems too simple. Healthy soils lead to a healthy plant. Healthy plant, healthy human, healthy climate. There could be a way to eat food that heals the planet. The problem isn't the animal. The problem is where the animals are at. How do we take waste and repurpose and reuse it because it's really not waste? The poop has to stay in the loop. Compost is just one of a suite of soil-based carbon capture solutions. We know how to do it. And if we continue to scale over 30 years, we can reverse global warming. We can get the earth back to the Garden of Eden that it once was by regeneration. To see biodiversity return to a place that was completely devastated, that gives me hope. Our health and the health of our planet are connected. If you look over here, my neighbor's land that has been chemical fallow, then you look over at our paddocks, you have a diversity of different plant species. Which model do you want your food to be produced from? The answer is pretty simple to me. I'll make you a deal. I won't give up, and neither should you. And, of course, at the One Earth Film Festival, which runs March 5th through 14th with the 2021 season launch party on Friday, March 5th at 6.30 p.m. Unless otherwise indicated, all films are free with suggested $8 donation. For more information, go to oneearthfilmfest.org. Welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Uh, We're talking about uh, all things Earth. Today, all mm-hmm. things nature, and uh, it's uh, the Wild Things Conference for 2021, and we have some of the presenters here. We heard from Trevor Edmondson. Hey, let's go to Alexis Smith, because as we mentioned before, you're talking about the connection of birds in Chicago to uh, the river, the Chicago River, and um, so tell me, how, how, how is it you got involved in this project? Hold on one second. Hey, Rio. Oh, sorry, my roommate's using a blender. <laughs> I thought, yeah, okay, we're we're in the espresso lounge here, and uh, <laughs> some, something's going on. The timing could not be better. Um, yeah, I love it. I'm sorry. What was your question? <laughs> Who knows? Uh, <laughs> how? Uh, well, you, you just got your PhDs. Is this what it uh, is in the? Is is the subject matter in line with this? Uh, how? Why is it you're doing this particular presentation? This was one of the chapters of my of my dissertation. Uh, all of my dissertation chapters had to do with different urban habitats in mm-hmm. in Chicago. Uh, one chapter was about the Chicago cemeteries, and uh, and that for cavity nesting birds such as woodpeckers and nuthatches and chickadees. Um, and another chapter was about community gardens, and then this chapter was about. Uh, the north branch of the Chicago River. And this this chapter kind of happened accidentally. Uh, I just started collecting data on birds to help a a group called Urban Rivers. um, Ah, okay. Because they were doing an urban breeding project. Yeah, it's a really cool project. And I thought, okay, I'll I'll get you some baseline data just to be nice uh, (laughs) to see what birds are 
<laughs> already out there and then you'll be able to know what uh, whether anything's changed whether this has had any impact um, but then the study it became a lot more interesting as I started thinking a lot more about all the different uses of the North Branch um, and all of the study sites that I had kind of chosen accidentally um, Excellent. Well, we'll go through, we'll go through those, some of those study sites. Yeah. And what I want to show you here is I love this. Uh, you created a postcard, uh, an, wow. old, an, old, an old-timey postcard cool. for your uh, slide presentation, for the title presentation, I assume. That's really cool. How did, uh, who did, did you do that yourself or did you have a friend do that? I, I got the postcard from um, the Newberry Library, which has mm-hmm. excellent imagery from all over history in Chicago. It's a, the Newberry Library is an excellent resource and it's like a lot of digitized and free. Um, and then I added the bird heads in on PowerPoint, but I'm really glad that you noticed because I felt like it was just gonna be like this fussy thing that I was doing to procrastinate and um, <laughs> <laughs> not work on other things. No, that's great, Alexis. No, no, no. That's that's what you do. Is, is and then you t- it turns out it turns it turns out to be brilliant. And I really loved it. I looked at that and I said, "Yeah, we got to start with uh, the postcard here." So nicely done. Um, <laughs> so, you like that. Yeah. So let's move on to this. Is the image I used uh, for my blog post? Uh, would you explain what we have here? So the the top left is uh, an illustration of part of the river uh, in 1800s. It's where the Kinsey Mansion was. And even though, you know, there's obviously signs of development, there's a house, uh, the Kinsey Mansion, uh, it's still very, you know, natural. You can see the sloping sides of the river. There's like little marshy areas. but nobody nobody the, in the uh, 21st century would call that a mansion, by the way. <laughs> right. But yeah. it, is, it is landscaped. Yeah, it it's definitely landscaped. There. Yeah. Um, so even then, it was representing some amount of <clears throat> change to the river. Yeah. Uh, and then the image below it is uh, a Google Earth Street View image. It's actually mm-hmm. like a river view image. It was taken from the same point of the river uh where we're looking at the uh, original image uh yeah so that's another another image from the newberry library um and so you can see that there's some substantial changes happening over the river um and those changes exclude a lot of bird species just because of their natural history and their you know their foraging (laughs) needs that those kinds of well, yeah, um, yeah. There's and steel so, and concrete there now. I mean, that's not exactly bird friendly, and this is uh, part of. The, it's the, great for uh, you know sparrows and and uh, pigeons and. Um, I got a few like of those. That. I got a few Anything of those. Anything that eats trash is fine down there, but yeah, uh, but it's but you know what? I, uh, what I will say, it's not good for people either. Um, it's just not. I mean, it, and and it's not good for plants, as we see on the right side with urban rivers. And I assume that is their floating. Uh, I forget what they call it. What do you have the name for that? They call them floating gardens. Oh, so it is floating garden. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that's across from Goose Island, and their plan is to build a wild mile of 
you know, walkways and um, the wild mile. That's that's what I was thinking of. The yeah, wild, wild mile. mile. Yeah, that's that's their official title for that. But yeah, and you can see. So we go from where we had it. Uh, in the upper left, which is nature's way of doing it, and then our way at the bottom, which is not terrific uh, and not really wonderful. And then what do we do? Oh, my goodness, maybe nature had a good idea, so let's try to put that back uh, the way it was. Um, and uh, I'm going to pop this one up, and I assume this is the various areas of the north branch of the Chicago River that you're uh, exploring with uh, in terms of the right. birds. Mm-hmm. These were, these were my study points, and other than the ones in Goose Island, um, you know, the other ones were established without knowing anything about the river, um, about those various areas. They were just established to have points of comparison, and um, they're just as far apart from each other as they need to be to be statistically independent. Um, but then I, I found... Like, at every group of points, there was some sort of urban greening project, whether um, established or in progress or planned. Um, and I thought that alone was interesting. And then I started digging into these different areas. And, All right. Um, I'm, I'm going to assume loop means loop, that uh, GOIS yeah, and Goose Island, is Goose that Island. the GOIS? All right. What's LIPA? Yes. Uh, that's Lincoln Park, where Lincoln Park intersects ah, the river. Okay. Mm-hmm. The diversity Let's, wetland. And then what's that bri- Rama? The, the bridge. Uh, Rama is Ravenswood Manor. All right. Rama Lama mm-hmm. Ding Dong. Okay. Uh, let's look. Exactly. <laughs> and are I am I to assume all of these birds uh, are are frequenting the Chicago River, but not my <clears throat> backyard? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. No, but, uh, go ahead. Some of these I, I encountered more commonly than others, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, the the north branch of the Chicago River is is hosting a, a you know a pretty nice diversity of species. Uh, which are the mo- the rarest uh, in the photos we're we're seeing there? I think I only saw the American Coot once. Where's that? Mm-hmm. That's the right middle. Far right middle. The bir- the uh, uh, the water bird with the that's all black with the white on its bill. With the with the black band around its okay, bill. Okay, the yeah. far, far right column in the center. Okay, next to the heron. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh yes. yeah. How about? Like, are, do you see a lot of wood ducks? I see you've got one up there. Uh, I did not see a lot of wood ducks. Yeah, I think there's just not enough. Um, trees for them to nest in mm-hmm. so those were also not super common uh, but i reliably saw herons in certain parts of the river like there's one little um mess of branches under a bridge that i would always see a great blue heron mm-hmm. and where was that um not that I want everybody to go go and scare the heron, but uh, yeah, no, leave, leave it alone. Uh, okay, let's, yeah, yeah let's not let's not even let's not even say where it was. It, it okay. was on the river. It was on the river someplace. It was on the river You're somewhere a, a, along that. So, um, what uh, we need to move on to Nigel, but very quickly, what do you hope to do with this information that you have? I hope that it can inform the way that 
um, people approach urban greening projects. Because mm -hmm. one of the points that I make is that in certain areas, urban greening projects can contribute to raising rents and raising the cost of living in certain areas. And I, I don't think that we as conservationists could be, should be contributing to gentrification and displacement of people. And I think there are ways that the, um, the context surrounding the area can, and especially like the human needs can also inform the the urban greening strategies and still support a lot of birds. Yeah. Uh, don't even get me started on Lincoln Yards because, uh, uh, you know, what, oh, yeah. what could have we been... We don't the, have enough time this morning. <laughs> what could have been the greatest urban park in the history of the planet and is just uh, more of the same old, same old concrete and steel, even though they claim that they're putting parkland in there. But don't don't get me started on that. Okay, let's, okay. let's, <laughs> let's move over to Nigel uh, Pittman from the Keller Science Action Center. Uh, at the Field Museum, and uh, tell us a little about, a bit about iNaturalist. As I said earlier, I, I, be, I, I just became aware of it a few months ago, and I feel like I'm way behind the curve. Why am I behind the curve? I'm sorry about that. You're not behind the curve. You're riding a wave. This is a platform <laughs> that uh, it's only about 10 years old, and 10 years ago there were about 100 people on it in the Chicago Wilderness Region making around 2,000 observations a year, and over the last 10 years, both of those numbers, <clears throat> total number of observers and total number of observations have been doubling every 14 months. Uh, it's growing exponentially, and you're, so you're part of that exponential growth. Uh, Trevor is as well, and <clears throat> we're up to now, in 2020, last year, uh, 13,000 people making more than a quarter of a million observations for the Chicago wilderness region. And there, and there's the graph so, that you sent me. And as you can see, this is the uh, the observers uh, starting, uh, like you said, uh, 2011, 109, yeah. uh, and now we're at almost 13,000 observers here, which so, which translates. Yes, Peggy. I was going to say, if we could take one quick step back for listeners who might not know what iNaturalist is. Uh, in nah, let them figure it out. No, okay, go ahead, Nigel. Explain what iNaturalist is. So it's a, it's a platform uh, where anyone anywhere in the world can make natural history observations. Typically, an it's app. someone on a, on a cell phone who sees mm -hmm. a plant or an animal, takes a picture of it, and then uploads that with uh, the coordinates, the location of the of the observation onto a platform where uh, everyone else can see it. And people on that platform can see other people's observations, identify them, correct, incorrect identifications, and so on. And this is the, uh, uh, the, uh, the number of observers, and then that takes us to this, which is the number of observations made in each year since 2011, uh, from 1,300 to 263,000 observations, almost 264,000 observations. And what kind of, what are we talking about when we say observations, Nigel? Uh, any, anything goes. It's everything from slime molds to, to birds to 
uh, <clears throat> plants, animals, insects, the largest groups on iNaturalist as far as number of observations and number of species are plants, insects, fungi, and birds. Um, so if you add up all the numbers in those columns, we're up to a total number of observations uh, for the Sh Chicago Wilderness region of uh, 600,000. And again, that number we expect to double to 1.2 million 14 months from now. Yikes. It's just incredible growth. And, and so, here you know, there's some of the photos that you said there's on and on. I mean, I, w I would love to go through the all of this, but it's plants and animals and fungi and whatever natural observations can be made on iNaturalist. Right. And, you know, there's, there's bananas in there as well. There are uh, statues and giraffes from Lincoln Park Zoo. And so one of the things that we're trying to do when looking at this whole data set is figure out um, how valuable it is for conservation. It, because it's got anything anyone wants to put in it, how much of it is valuable, how much of it is trash. And the good news, we found that the trash makes up of the bananas make up a very uh, small proportion of the, the data. <laughs> are you talking literally, literally bananas? Were they growing on anything or they, were they just sitting on the ground? <laughs> well, they're, they're bought at Whole Foods and then photographed in someone's kitchen. So this, again, <laughs> is one of the risks of the platform. It's a public platform. Yeah. Anyone yeah, can upload anything. Yeah. And so, yeah. Uh, oh, oh, okay. I mean, if 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 that happens, uh, I get it. It's, okay, it's there. But as as Stephanie pointed out, by using iNaturalist, she's found some really interesting insects in her tiny urban yard. So if if you see something and you don't know what it is, and you can post it, then find out as opposed to a banana. You know, so it's it's a it's a great way to figure out what is in your yard. Yeah, but but if you're gonna uh, you know do bananas, don't be a banana. jerk. You know, we just have to put that in there. So Yeah, skip the uh, banana. Skip the bananas. Uh, this is out of order, so uh, your pictures are going to pop up. But I really wanted to show this graph here. Let's get your photos out of the way. So, you know, I have to do my macros in a certain order. But this is the density of iNaturalist observations across the Chicago wilderness region. And I was kind of curious about it because it seemed, well, obviously it's denser where there are more people. But there's more nature, I would assume, in the outlying areas. So you might expect to have more observations there. Can you comment on that, Nigel? Sure. There are definitely um, some links here to population density, but there are also really strong links to green areas. So more than half of iNaturalist observations from the Chicago wilderness region are inside preserves or other, other protected areas. Um, there are also really strong patterns with, you know, these are census tracts, and so not just the number of people in each census tract, but things like um, uh, economic um, economic data from these, these different census tracts. It looks like, mm -hmm. for example, there's a lot more observations being made in the north shore of Chicago, uh, closer to the lake. And so these are all patterns that we're we're digging into in the data set. That's 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 kind of interesting there because uh, it, it's a, a little bit counterintuitive, at least uh, uh, at least for me. But uh, um, I get it. So we've got a question, Nigel, um, from Leslie. She wants to know if iNaturalist is being used in schools. 
iNaturalist is is being used in schools. So I I'm uh, teaching uh, for two different universities that are using iNaturalist. Um, and when when we look at at the data and the um, months of different activity, um, we see that there are a lot more users in September. There's this weird peak. Of course, there are more users in the summer months. Yeah. But then in September, when schools come back, we also see a little bump as well. And so it suggests to us that, yeah, a lot of teachers are using iNaturalist to get kids connected to the plants and animals that are around them. Uh, and it sounds like, well, uh, it's just a, a wonderful tool to use. Obviously, you can put it on your phone. You take it with you. It's uh, this is this is life in the 21st century, isn't it, Nigel? Where uh, in the old days, uh, you needed your pad. You brought a piece of paper. Yeah. If you were lucky, you had a a camera, and you might be able to take a photograph. Now it's just pop yep. it into. And I imagine that uh, Alexis and Trevor, you're doing a lot of the same thing with your observations. I don't use iNaturalist. Um, oh, no, I didn't mean iNaturalist so much as just the phone you've got with you, which you can use to to record whatever it is you oh, have there. Yeah, I just meant more that I, um, I was going to use, I use the Seek app, which is through iNaturalist, and it's, mm -hmm. it's, I think it's really meant more for children, but I use it all the time, <laughs> and you you get little like badges when you've had a certain number of observations and it's really useful for identifying plants. Um, yeah. uh, go ahead, Trevor. Yeah, I use iNaturalist all the time, not just for moths, for anything. And I think I joined in 2015 mm -hmm. and yeah, it's a wonderful tool. And as the data set grows, like, you know, Nigel's talking about, I mean, there's going to, you can glean so much from it. Like, I like one thing I like to do is track bluebells as they're coming up from the south. When they're when people are logging bluebells in southern Illinois, I can yeah. sort of plan when they're going to show up here, uh, and then you can track sort of like bloom time periods, you know, over three years and, and see how mm. climate change might be affecting that. There's so much you can do; it's incredible. Yeah, it's great for just not even s submitting something new, but identifying what you have there based on the database. And I became yeah, one of. Uh, go ahead. No, it's just worth remembering an old report from Louis Joliet, one of the first European explorers to the area. He was so impressed floating down the Chicago River saying, this place is amazing. We can't go 15 minutes without seeing game. There's so many animals here. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we can't see what people in the Chicago region saw hundreds of years ago, but we have this window on the region's biodiversity that's absolutely astonishing. Now, if we spend 15 minutes on iNaturalist, on a summer day in 2020, we would have seen dozens and dozens and dozens of different plants and animals. It's just a, an incredible window. Yeah, the, can I ask you, uh, we're going to have to break here, but uh, let me ask you a real quick question about that, Nigel. Did you see a spike, any kind of a spike uh, during the uh, pandemic uh, in terms of the visibility of certain species? Uh, we haven't. We haven't looked for it. We, the question we looked for in the pandemic was where, whether more people were using iNaturalist, whether it grew faster because people were had more time to be outside instead of commuting. Yeah. And uh, the answer is no. The exponential <laughs> growth was just went on uh, the way it has for the last 10 years. Oh, that's okay. As long as it's, it's going up. Hey, you got a, a, a new uh, subscriber yesterday. That I, I signed up 
for it, and now I'm going to have to put the app uh, on my phone. Uh, uh, Trevor Edmondson, Alexis Smith, Nigel Pittman, thank you so much. This is just a sample of the kinds of things that are going to be available at 2021 Wild Things. Go to wildthingscommunity.org. Uh, as I said, each part of the conference, and there are two weekends. Uh, one goes from uh, February 19th to the 21st. The other is the 26th to the 28th. Each weekend is 15 bucks, but for 30 bucks, you can do the whole thing. You can just, you know, grab the popcorn and, and a soda and just hunker down and uh, watch all of these, and you can participate, or you can watch videos uh, like the one that Nigel's going to have up there for iNaturalist. There are a bunch of those as well. Um, agriculture and conservation, plant and animals, restoration, environment, education programs, uh, community science, a uh, lot about uh, citizen science. Um, this is uh, just great stuff. And there's, it's a conference unlike anything, as far as I know, yeah. on the planet. Um, so uh, anybody got a final word uh, before we wrap up here? Nope. I'll see okay. you at Wild Things. Yeah, there you go. That's it. That's it. That's that's how you do it. Thank you all for nope. for being here. Uh, when we come back, we're we're getting back into our own gardens, and we're not digging in the dirt. We're going to tell you how to prevent uh, digging in the dirt on the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. My name is Megan Kosensky, and I'm a plant health care specialist and a grounds person at Bartlett Tree Experts. It's no secret that the world of arboriculture is a male-dominated industry, but there is a fearless group of women out there that are determined to change that, and I'm really proud to be one of those women. Bartlett has been really great about recognizing any kind of roadblocks for different genders, different races, people of different nationalities, and just kind of taking a bulldozer to all of those roadblocks. Every day that I go to work, I find something new that I love about what I do. Every tree needs a champion. Hello from Happy Leaf. This is BJ Miller, the horticulturist here on staff. The best way we can help you be successful with indoor gardening is to provide you with a really great grow light. There are a lot of choices on the market and it can be extremely confusing to decide what you need. Our goal here at Happy Leaf is to provide you with a light that lasts a very long time and makes your plants really happy. We have several satisfied customers, including our friends Mike Novak and Peggy Malecki, because we have specifically designed a light that is versatile, it's very effective, and it is extremely simple to use. Our lights are perfect for seed starting, but you can do so much more, especially these months of the winter. You can supply yourself with your own leafy greens and herbs, grow lots of different types of vegetables, keep your small fruit trees thriving, and your houseplants will think you've sent them for a day at the spa. Welcome to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio with just a swoop-saw of humor. Or is that a dash? Brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts. Every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. Here they are again, Peggy Malecki and Mike Novak. All I need is good food to eat and make me healthy, wealthy, wide awake. Lettuce, tomatoes, root, and bacon. 
What about those sweet potatoes? All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good tools to make me music. And welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. And you can see that guy in the lower left-hand corner who we're going to be with. And just as don't speak, don't say anything yet. Because I have to remind folks, not yet. Stop laughing. Don't. I'll. I'll. I'll cut off your mic. I'll just. I'll just cut it right off. I see. I. I have the power. I could do this too. I could just go whoop, and you're gone. Okay. <laughs> oh wait, wait. There he. Oh, uh, he's back. Okay. Uh, okay. We will cut Quick. off his mic. All right. Here we go. The uh, Evanston Environmental Association's Wild and Scenic Film Festival goes virtual this March, so you can attend from the comfort of your home. This year's films include the story of the first African-American male to complete the triple crown of hiking. I didn't even know there was a triple crown of hiking. Um, Another film is how church forests in Ethiopia protect the biodiversity of old-growth forests. And there's another story, and Peggy, I will cut you off too. I will just turn off that mic if if I hear that typing there. If I just hear, see, whoop. There you go. Wait, see, she's talking and there's nothing going on. Okay, back to the spot. Another film is the story of one community's fight to keep an oil refinery closed after an explosion. This special event happens on two nights, March 19th and 26th, 6.30 to 9.30 p.m. Tickets are available starting at 10 bucks. Not much there. And all proceeds support the Evanston Ecology Center. For more info and register, visit evanstonenvironment.org slash filmfest or as Bill Curtis would say evanstonenvironment.org slash filmfest. All right, your your mic's back on, Peggy. I know you were pointing. You had to do some very, very important stuff there, right? I was welcoming Charlie Nardozzi to the show to all of our viewers. Ah, and there he is. That is. Well, except uh, on this show we say Nardotsi. It's Charlie Nardotsi. And here he is. All right. Hold the book up. Everybody's got a copy of the book. No dig gardening. <laughs> okay. Uh, that'll cost you extra, Charlie, uh, to do that. Um, welcome back. It's been, oh my goodness, it's been three years. Can you believe that? What, what happened? I was amazed. I was amazed when I saw you wrote that in 2018. We, we saw yeah. each other in Chicago. And Peggy, too, at the Chicago Flower Show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we were playing music then, too. I think I was playing a Beatles tune, and you guys started dancing. You're so young at heart. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're not, because if you're, if you're a Beatles fan, obviously you're an old fogey nowadays. So, uh, uh, but uh, you're right. Um, it, I went back to look at that, and it made me realize uh, the world changes. The world just mm-hmm. continues to change. Two, uh, three years ago, there was a Chicago Flower and Garden show. There is no longer a Chicago Flower and Garden show. And I don't... Are, 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 as we know it. As we know it. It, it, it is, it's uh-huh. evolving, and uh, uh, Tony Abriscato is doing plant truck, and he's taking the garden to people in the mm-hmm. city, and they're doing other projects. Uh, but the Chicago Flower and Garden Show, as we know it, in the big hall, where let's face it, they spent a lot of money to put that thing on. And that was always, that's an issue. 
you know, to, to have to... Uh, for, for any flower show. For Not any event, you know, for for, for, forking yeah. over cash to do that. And now we have all these events that are online. Uh, and some of them are going to stay online even after this. Um, I, I'm wondering, Charlie, because you get around quite a bit, are there other flower shows that you think might have gone away because of the pandemic? I think maybe some of the smaller flower shows, flower shows in smaller cities, I should say. Um, they're usually pretty big uh, events wherever they are. Yeah. Uh, but I think some of those might just either go away or do what they did in Vermont, where I'm based, is that they went to every other year um, because it was just, like you're saying, so much effort, so much energy uh, to put out a flower show to get everybody together to do that. Um, skipping every other year hasn't really skipped a beat. You know, People are still very excited about it when it comes around. Yeah. Uh, and 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 it's different here in uh, Chicago because come on, if you're putting on a flower show at Navy Pier, which is in the heart of the third largest city in America, it costs a lot of money. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a lot of effort to do that, and you got to book it well in advance. And there's just all kinds a lot of, of moving parts. Yep, hoops a lot of fire. Moving parts and there's there's weather. There's other events that are happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. There's so many competing interests. And uh, yeah, I'd be very curious to see what happens hopefully next year, next winter, when we can go to bigger shows like that, whatever kind of events they are, uh, what kind of attendance it shows up for them. It's, that's going to be interesting. However, um, one of the things we've learned in the past year, uh, we've had uh, Chris Bates on from Grower Talks, uh, who's mentioned that, uh, well, and, 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 um, Oh gosh, the uh, uh, now I'm going to blank on the uh, company that recorded the number of gardeners. Um, oh come on, who's the one that grows all the the vegetables? Uh, and they used to be an advertiser, and I can't remember well, their name. Well, ball seed. No, not ball, ball seed. seed. No, 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 no. The um, ah, okay, it'll come to me when I don't need it. Um, there may be. <laughs> I'll be getting a text <laughs> like eleven. Age is creeping up on you, Mike. You guys, you guys, you guys, uh, talk amongst yourself. I'm going to go uh, researching. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Charlie. <laughs> hey, Peggy. How are you? Oh my goodness. Hey, do you hear we're doing a radio show? Bonnie plants. Yeah, I see. Okay, Bonnie. Bonnie, pl- oh, Bonnie the plants. Bonnie. The winner is yes, Bonnie plants. Thank you, folks. Uh, for two hundred, Alex. Bonnie plants. Um, is oh too soon. Uh, anyway, uh, so they said there might be somewhere in the neighborhood of 16 to 20 million new gardeners, uh, as of the pandemic year, because people found that, uh, it, it was important now to garden or they were bored or whatever reason. I think frankly, it was because it was important that I think that had a lot to do with it. Uh, what do you think, Charlie? Well, I actually uh, have been doing a little consulting work with the National Gardening Association, and they put out the National Gardening Survey. I don't know if you've ever Mm -hmm. seen that. It's been around for Mm -hmm. many, many years. Yep. Uh, So um, they are putting out that survey and should be getting the information by March, I believe, as far as how the trends changed in 2020. You know, last year when they did the survey, it was looking at 2019, and everything was just kind of so-so. Um, well, actually, the, uh, there, the trends, some of the trends were downward. Uh, folks were saying yeah, yes, gar- gardening exactly. is finished. It's over. Nobody's gardening yeah, well, anymore. Yeah. People always say that. You and I have been around the garden cl- uh, 
garden cart enough times to know that these trends come and go. You know, whenever you yep. have any kind of uh, pandemic or natural disasters or economic downturn, people turn to gardening. So the question isn't are more people are, are more people gardening or not. The question really is are they going to continue gardening when things go back to a new normal? And uh, hopefully we'll find out. I'm going to be writing a piece for them called What Gardeners Think based on that survey. And that should be out in the spring. So it'll be kind of interesting to see, looking at the numbers, how many people are gardening, what kinds of gardening they're doing. I'm mm -hmm. guessing, like you probably would know, a lot of it will be small space gardening, container gardening, edible gardening, um, trying to, you know, and houseplants too, of course, have been really, really hot for a while. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Anything that uh, you can have in a contained space, uh, as you say, um, a lot of us live in the city, um, and uh, I have a tiny little backyard here, which right now is covered uh, with ten thousand sparrows um, in the bird feeder, and and I know I'm and just a lot of snow. Did you, did you work on that song that you were talking about, the country western song? I haven't sparrows, finished it yet. No, uh, Charlie said I needed to write a song about called Ten Thousand Sparrows, and I th and I decided it was going to be a country song. So uh, I have to start working on that. And ten thousand uh, sparrows in the rain, waiting for the train. It's something like that. Oh, there uh, we go. Maybe and, it can be your co-author. And and the pigeon just got out of jail. All right. And uh, it, it would have been a stool pigeon. Thank you very much. Okay. Uh, All right. What about this here? I got to get one of those. <laughs> I got to get one of those. Uh, okay. Well, you could also have one of these. All right. So, oh, you know, I think everybody needs to. I did that actually one year where I put a bunch of sound effects on my cell phone. And I would walk around and I would, I, at certain points, I would just like punctuate my conversation with sound effects. So I think that yeah. uh, everybody needs people to do that. Around, people turned around and walked away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they did. Well, they do anyway. That's that's their oh, usual okay. reaction to me. So, what? Uh, Charlie Nardazzi, uh, why did you write this book? For, for God's sake, Charlie, why did you write this book? You mean this book? I mean this book. <laughs> No, no, oh, which this one, book. Peggy? This book? Oh, these books. This, this particular book. <laughs> I wrote all three of these, actually. <laughs> At the same time. At the same time. Well, as you and Peggy probably maybe have had a similar experience in your lives, when you grew up gardening, the tiller was kind of a central point, of a central piece of in most gardens, right? There's always this idea of tilling the soil, tilling the soil. Well, no, no, no. When you start, when you start, it's the shovel and you realize oh. you you will kill yourself if you just do it all with a shovel. And then some smart guy down the block goes, well, I've got a rototiller. You want to borrow the rototiller? And you go, wow, you are you must be important. You've got a – do you have a snowblower too? Oh, yeah, i got a snowblower in, in the, in the, the garage snowblower as well. Snowblower with the uh, rototiller attachment. Exactly. exactly. Oh, there you go. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we, we all kind of grew up as young gardeners, you might say, um, do, doing the tilling thing, doing the turning thing, doing the digging thing. And that was just something we kind of assumed was okay. Then a number of years ago, I started looking more into permaculture, into the different mm -hmm. uh, types of gardening out there. and started realizing that there's perhaps a better way to garden, especially for a, a home gardener. And that would involve not tilling the soil, not turning the soil. 
And then, of course, we're getting more and more information about the importance of soil and the di dynamism and life that's in the soil. It's amazing. If I was going to start all over again as a young horticulturist, <laughs> I would major in soil science because it's just fascinating what they're finding out that's happening underneath the, the grass here, underneath the, the ground. Um, all the different microbes that are there, the, the billions of microbes that are in a teaspoon of soil, which is just kind of blows my mind. So the idea of turning that soil and digging that soil, uh, what we find happens is that you destroy a lot of those soil microbes yeah. in the process and, and the structure of the soil it naturally develops. And so no dig kind of come, brings us back to nature in this way. Because in natural systems like in forests or in grasslands, no one's tilling that. No one's digging it. No one's throwing compost on it. It's just growing. And why is that? because we have a healthy soil that has created its own ecosystem under there where they're sharing nutrients and water, they're communicating with each other, they're having parties, they're doing all kinds of stuff <laughs> under there. And so if we could do that in our vegetable, flower, and herb garden, that's going to be a benefit to the soil and it's going to be a benefit to us because lo and behold, it's less work. Your back is going to feel a lot better when you're not digging and tilling and turning that soil. And also, uh, because you're creating that natural environment that's there, uh, you're going to have healthier plants. The water and air is going to be able to flow through that soil. You're not going to have as many weeds because you're not turning the soil all the time. Um, and in this age of climate change, what we're doing also is sequestering carbon in the soil. And that's what they're finding more and more is really important is that we can sequester carbon in the soil to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and, of course, reduce the effects of global warming. So by turning the soil, you're releasing that carbon. By leaving the soil be, you're actually preserving that carbon. It's amazing how many different things uh, can result from not turning the soil or how many bad things can happen if you just start pulverizing your soil. You, I, I learned about this uh, from Jeff Lowenfels, teaming mm -hmm. with microbes. Uh, and I've told people now for more than a decade, uh, like a dozen years, I said, if you want to really understand what's going on in your soil, you want to change your life in terms of how you approach gardening, pick up Teeming with Microbes. Um, and there's an, uh, he's got a new version of it out as well. And uh, it and, and it explains what I like to call, and they, and they use the, the soil food web. Um, I find that that, for, that works for me in my mind to... Uh, think of this as the soil food web. And I, as I tell people, it's like the internet, only dirty. And um, <laughs> everything's connected. Uh, like the, like the, the internet, you know, you think of things going in different directions and different connections. It's the same thing in your soil. Uh, it's not all at the top and then working its way to the bottom. No, things are going up. Things are going down. Things are going sideways. Um, the, the, the critters, uh, the, the bacteria and fungi and mycorrhizae mm -hmm. and, and everything else and insects um, are all interacting at different levels. Um, and if you just leave it alone, they do their jobs, which is gets you back to the no-dig gardening. Just let them... Uh, do what leave it alone right mm -hmm. leave it alone and a lot good right. happens yeah. however i can see somebody Which, right now uh listening to this watching this saying well how do i put a gallon container in the ground if i can't dig <laughs> <laughs> huh huh did you a think about that charlie 
<laughs> well, if you want to do some con container gardening, you could do that too. Mixing well, how, how do you put the plant in the ground? Well, how do you put the plant? Oh, you, Mike's. oh, the plant in the ground. How do you put the plant? In? Yeah, no, how, come how do on, I pull Charlie. Up the old plants without digging. Let me let me tell you what you do. You see, if you're building your your beds, you're going to build a raised bed when you do a no-dig garden. So you're going to be raising things up. And you can do it a number of different ways. You can do it with layers of organic mat matter, uh, similar to lasagna gardening. A lot of people are familiar with lasagna gardening. Same idea as that, where you're, you're mixing brown and green materials, and then you're capping it all with some compost on top. If you do that in the fall and leave it in, a say, in a, a cooler climate like we're mm -hmm. living in, um, by spring, you'll be able to just plant right into it. And literally... I don't even use garden tools much anymore. I know that sounds really kind of weird, um, but when I'm planting things in my raised beds, I'm taking my hands, digging down with my hands, pushing it aside, putting in my, my one-gallon container of uh, tomatoes or whatever it is, and putting it back again. If you don't want to do all the organic matter kind of stuff, you can simply just get compost and topsoil and mix those in and use mm -hmm. your bed that way. So there's a number of different ways to approach it. You can even do the old Ruth Stout method. You remember that one? deep mulching yeah and that one goes back to the 1970s and you know in this book i talk about a lot of these people i don't really yeah. claim to say I, these are my ideas these are new ideas a lot of this stuff has been going on it's just bringing it together so people can see it in one place i thought would be really helpful so in her system what she did is she started laying down a mix of um, hay and chopped leaves about eight to ten inches deep on her whole garden and she just did that and she would move it aside, plant her plants, put it back. And she mm -hmm. did it 12 months of the year. She always yeah. made sure that there was something on that soil. And what it did is, of course, broke down, kept breaking down, getting healthier and healthier soil. She got to a point where she would just literally throw corn seeds, throw potatoes in there, throw a little hay on top of them <laughs> and leave it and walk away. Oh, and it would yeah. grow and she oh, would get yeah. it. It's that easy, Mike. I really. know. It's like those I people know. who say, I can, <laughs> I can take my hand and stick it up to my elbow in the ground, just like that. Isn't that how? Uh oh, we, we just the echo just popped up and now it goes away. See that that's what happens. Oh, uh, anyway, getting a little too excited, Peggy. I I think so. Uh, but we have some folks well, who I, had some. Go ahead, Peggy. I was going to look at some uh, of the questions here. Well, there was a couple of questions, but the other thing I was going to mention and or ask Charlie has to do with in, in not just fall cleanup, but for many people who left their plants and in the spring, rather than digging them all out. You're suggesting just chopping them off at the ground. Yes, and that's part of the maintenance section of the book where I talk mm -hmm. about, well, what do you do in the fall? Where most of us are used to, like you're saying, pull everything out. And, uh. and of course, that process will destroy everything. Yep. If you have plants yeah. that were not heavily diseased, you do a technique, what I call chop and drop. Chop and drop. And that means you literally just chop that plant like a broccoli plant. You chop it off at the ground level, then shred it up. My best tool that I use, there it is. And, and there is it my, is. Uh, manual hedge trimmer and I just chop everything up, leave it there on the soil, just like my command with our dogs, leave it. <laughs> and just leave it over. Leave. And then sit, the, stay. And then in the sit, stay, leave it. And then in the spring, just come back with a layer of compost on top and plant into it. Now for those gardeners who love that nice manicured clean look of a tiller, uh, tilled bed, get over this it. might be a bit of because it's going to look a little messy in the spring. Some, not everything's going to decompose completely, um, but you'll see the plants grow fine. And once yeah. things start growing up, it's going to hide all that other organic material in there. And by doing this time and time again, you're going to be building up that soil fertility. I, I'm telling you, the greatest disease in the gardening world is the idea 
that everything should be neat and tidy in yeah. the fall. Neatness. This it's killing it's killing your garden. Believe me, folks. If you're removing all those leaves and you're removing all the debris, you're killing yourself. You're wasting precious natural resources that can go right back into the soil. Mm-hmm. As Charlie points out here, here's another photo that you sent me. Uh, this is deep hay mulch. Now, one of the things I need to tell you, Charlie, because you keep referring to, oh, have you got hay or straw? In the city, it's hard to come by that stuff, all right? And, especially organic. Yeah, straw. especially organic. Yeah. yeah. So you have to be opportunistic. So in a city, uh, maybe you find a, a place where there are leaves, that they're collecting bags of leaves, shred those up, use those. Uh, maybe you're talking with someone who's mowing lawns and not, and especially, of course, lawns not treated with herbicides, and c- gather some of that. So you might have to be a little more opportunistic and creative yep. about where you find your materials. But Grabbing your neighbor's of nice bags th- of leaves from the curb. Exactly. Uh, that's one of the nice things. I tell people if they're along the seacoast, use seaweed. Why not? That's a great material uh, to use in your garden. So using whatever materials you have around that's accessible, uh, making sure, of course, they're clean in the sense that they don't have uh, chemicals uh, in- involved in them, and using those to build up your soil. And or wood. Uh, this is the Hugel. Or wood. The Hugel culture. Hugel culture. Hugel culture. Hugel culture. Very good, Peggy. Uh, this goes uh, harkens to Eastern Europe and Germany. This is a technique that was evolved over there. Is when you, you know if you have a woodlot area. So I realize a lot of people in the city are not going to have woodlots, but nope. if you have spare wood around, if folks living in more suburban and rural areas, um, instead of just leaving it there, which is okay, leaving it to rot is a good thing too. Um, but definitely not burning it or just getting rid of it, sending it off to a, a dump somewhere. Um, you can make these mounds where you put all yeah. the wood in, in the mound and then you throw in other organic materials. You can see from this illustration in my book, there's you know, leaves in there and grass and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then you cap it with, again, some soil. Um, and then you can grow plants literally in that mound. If you and have this could fairly work, good... This could work. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say this could work in community gardens. We saw this at um, the Prosser School Garden with Chicago Public Schools has this type of a, a setup in part. Right. So you could do this. And if you build it up, say, three feet tall with all of this material, eventually what happens is it kind of slowly starts decomposing and it slowly starts sinking. But you can have everything from your vegetables. You know, the first year, maybe you put some vining things like winter squash and pumpkins on it to kind of cover the whole thing. And then as years go by, you can use other vegetables. In this illustration, we even talk about fruits and trees that you can put in these. Sure. And if you have thick, if you have really big diameter pieces of wood, this could last for 20 years. So wow. there's different ways to do this kind of technique of not digging um, to, to kind of really be productive in your garden and also help the planet. All right, we have some questions here I want to get to before uh, we run out of time. Uh, one of them is is gets to the heart of the matter. Jan writes, any advice for a community garden that is tilled in fall and spring? And this is what I tell people. Is a lot of people get the rototiller out, and it's a religion to them. It's a, it's a fetish, actually, is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're doing it, whether it needs it or not, in the spring and the fall. How do you deal with something like that, Charlie? Well, you really have to go to the source of, of who is running that community garden and, and have a discussion. I know uh, community gardens in our area up here, uh, some of the community gardens have areas set aside that are for uh, what they call perennial gardens, but in this case would be no dig or no till. 
uh, garden areas. So those folks who want to do that kind of technique, they have a separate little area. And then the others who are fine with the tilling thing, they can have their area. Good idea. But there, there has there has to be some kind of discussion that happens, I think, as far as why you well, want to do this. And I'll tell you, the hardest thing in gardening, I think, is not digging, is not anything, it's not schlepping mulch, it's talking to your neighbor. Uh, regardless, <laughs> I'm serious. I have decided yes. because I, the, you know, the neighbor on the one side who puts down weed and feed and is convinced that it's the only way to operate, and I'm saying, hey, would you stop putting down poisons because it's drifting into my yard here? Please don't do that. And you can't convince her that uh, that's a bad thing. Um, and, and she doesn't manage to control the weeds anyway, but she's still slamming that stuff on the ground. Um, and just talking to somebody is the hardest thing and convincing them that, Hey, maybe you don't want to clean that up every fall. Maybe you could leave oh, the idea that somebody might leave leaves on the ground. Oh my God, you might as well have just kicked their dog, um, <laughs> the way they're going to react. It's just crazy. Um, yeah. This sense of everything has to be neat and tidy and, and filled up. And we see this in forests, too. People who do have a little woodlot mm-hmm. around their, their property. Uh, I have neighbors who just go in and take all the understory growth out because for some reason they want to see the big trees, but they, want to don't, they don't want to see all the bushes and the ground covers and things that are As long there. as they're not invasive, you know. Uh, right. The big so, black bear or something. I'm not sure what it is, but it's, it's, it's definitely a psychological phenomena that we have, that we need to have things nice and neat and cleaned up. And if we can go a little bit beyond that, you'll see that it's going to be not only better for the soil, it can be better for you because you'll have less work to do and more time to enjoy the garden. Uh, and um, uh, uh, Stephanie says tilling can also kill native bees that live in overwinter in the soil. Heck, tilling kills all kinds of insects. If you're pulverizing plants and plant material in the ground, you're pulverizing living things down there, insects uh, and other critters. You're pulverizing worms. Believe me, you're, you're, you're doing damage. Um, so, but that's a, that's a good point. Um, quick question here. I, have you done any research into biochar? Or, uh, what are your thoughts on biochar? Yeah, so I did have a little section in biochar in my book, just a little sidebar on it, because it is something that a lot more people are using. And, and the, the research I found about it is that it's not really, uh, didn't really convince me that I think we should go to that extent of using biochar in the garden. Um, there may be situations that call for it, and I know in agricultural situations they're experimenting a lot with it. But I think um, it's not really worth the, the energy and the effort. I'd rather really? see people, yeah, working, uh, trying to get more uh, involved with building soil through compost, through using organic materials, and changing some of these behaviors that we're talking about. Interesting. You also talk about uh, straw bales, and of course we've talked about mm-hmm. that on the show. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah. the, the, you know, two years ago, Peggy and I got a couple of straw bales that we, uh, the problem is they never made it to our yards. They, <laughs> they... <laughs> Well, one, one did. I've been I actually have about this much left of one. I've been using it for mulch. Yeah, I've been using it. uh, But the big ones, no, the big ones are are busy growing. They're growing in Evanston right now. They're they're growing a crop of weeds behind the radio station we used to work at. So... uh, well, yeah, there could be very healthy weeds growing in there. They're though. very healthy <laughs> weeds there. Uh, is there a website you can share? Of course. See, this is this. That's a great question. Thank you, Zan. Uh, yes. Charlie Nardozzi, tell people where they need to go and we can wrap this up. 
Ah, gardeningwithcharlie.com. That's gardeningwithcharlie.com, all one word. You can type my name, Charlie Nardozzi, too, and you'll find it. Um, and in, in there, you'll see all these articles, podcasts, videos that I've done. I do webinars. In fact, I have one on the 23rd on companion planting and ecological gardening. And I'm doing one on No Dig the end of March, March 30th. Uh, so there's a couple opportunities there to interact with me and find out more about this. And, of course, you can go to MikeNovak.net, and uh, there's a link to the book. There's a link to Charlie's site. Uh, there's more information about Charlie. Yes, wait a second. Okay, let's go back one more time. Everybody, get the book. Here we go. There Look we go. at those layers, Mike. Look at it, the layers. It looks like a, a birthday cake. It does. And with it candles. There's candles in the top. It's Your a green, and beet it's a green <laughs> birthday cake. Charlie, thank you so much. Uh, uh, we got to do this again. We can't wait three years uh, until we do this yes, again. Yes, let's not do that. Love to do this again anytime. <laughs> All right. Uh, much success with the book and much success with everything you got going. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, watch. I'll make him fade away. Look, there he goes. Ah, how did that happen? <laughs> And you can still hear him. Wait, wait. Say something, Charlie. You still there? Can you still hear me? Not anymore. <laughs> it's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. You have the ability to give your soil a superpower. It's called composting. If you don't have a backyard, you need to contact Collected Resource Compost. CRC has diverted 7,000 tons of food scraps since 2010. They bring you a fresh 5-gallon bucket or a 32-gallon neighbor tote with each pickup. You fill it with organic matter from your kitchen, they swap it out and get it to a commercial composting operation. Fight climate change. Go to collectiveresource.us. At this time of year, we spend a lot of time indoors with our plants, so help them thrive. The plants you're viewing were treated with Leafzyme, a foliage spray designed to activate beneficial microbes already present on the leaves. A spritz every few weeks promotes growth-enhancing microorganisms that process dust and other particles into nutrition that indoor plants can absorb through their leaves for beautiful and vigorous growth. Go to blazing-star.com and check out their BioGarden line for home gardeners. At Sitka Salmon Shares, we take pride in being a seafood company that's a little different. In fact, 10 seasons ago, our motto was we do salmon differently. Nowadays, we harvest 15 species of wild-caught Alaskan fish, but still call ourselves Sitka Salmon Shares because, well, we're a little different. Our difference starts with our fleet of fishermen Hello. who own a slice of the company mm. and are paid above industry average. They deliver fish to our docks in about half the time as other fishermen, which means higher quality of fish for you. And we never buy our fish from large processors where we don't know how each fish was caught or handled, like most other companies do. Another difference is our fish plant, which we own too. Our plant freezes fish about twice as cold and twice as fast as the other guys. This produces unparalleled quality at a cellular level. Ooh. Our difference extends to you too. By joining our community, you band together with thousands of other people who want to make a difference in the way that their food is produced. This allows our fishermen to harvest fish just for you, with the respect, thought, and care that the fish, the ocean, and you deserve. So, be a little different. Join us at SitkaSalmonShares.com. And that's a terrifying look there in the in the corner. Oh, that does dear. that does not bode well for the weather this week. We'll get to meteorologist Rick DeMaio in just a second, but first, Peggy. 
the Evanston Environmental Association's Wild and Scenic Film Festival goes virtual this March, so you can attend from the comfort of your home, and right now the warmth of your home. Um, this year's films include the story of the first African-American male to complete the triple crown of hiking, how church forests in Ethiopia protect the biodiversity of old-growth forests, and the story of one community's fight to keep an oil refinery closed after an explosion. This special event happens on two nights, March 19th and 26th from 6.30 to 9 p.m., and tickets are available starting at just $10. All proceeds support the Evanston, Environ- I'm sorry, the Evanston Ecology Center. So for more info and to register, visit evanstonenvironment.org slash filmfest. You just wanted to say, like Bill Curtis, environment. environment. Have you ever been in a room, uh, Rick DeMaio, when Bill Curtis said environment? Well, I, I mean, I, I actually worked with Bill a couple of times. Oh, I'm sure you did. You, you were at, uh, at uh, CBS uh, yeah. Chicago. So you got to hear him say Environment. Environment. Uh, Rick DeMar. <laughs> Boy, I would give anything to have him say, and now Mike Novak. Yeah. You I know, might I, I remember I remember a time when, you know, they reunited Bill and Walter and I was downstairs on the um, in the main studio and Walter was doing the news cut. Walter Jacobson. Um, Walter Jacobson, yeah. And um Bill Curtis was upstairs uh, doing his cut-in, and after they finished, I'm not kidding you guys, uh, Walter Jacobson says, my God, he just sounds so good. And it was just like, um, I, know, I know, and this, is, I mean, this was when Walter was probably, I don't know, 70 years old, and it's not like he hadn't worked with him before. But yeah. Bill's voice was resonating through the studio from upstairs. So, oh yeah, um, yeah. glass was glass out. was shaking. People were grabbing their kids and running for cover just when he spoke. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's he's the best. Uh, by the <laughs> way, I, vortex. I, the polar vortex. Um, I have this on because our refrigerator broke overnight, so we have the heat off in the house to make sure that everything doesn't spoil in the refrigerator. <laughs> Are you serious? I hope not. Uh, although, no, can, can, no, no. half half of that half of that is true. The refrigerator did break, so I had to put all my food um, in bags um, outside, and of course, it all froze. You know, go figure that the night that the refrigerator breaks is when it gets down to five degrees below zero. Uh, but as soon as I'm done with you guys, I have a bigger problem on my hands, which is how to get someone out here to fix it on a Sunday, which is not going to be easy. Oh my goodness. But, yeah so, yeah. so you have good luck. Okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, seriously, good luck. <laughs> yeah, I I I I hope you figure it out. Uh, uh can I ask you to tilt tilt down just a little bit? You look a little ominous there. Uh there we go. That's, you mean that's... I, I can't get through airport security like this? No, I <laughs> I don't think so. Oh, like dear. That. That uh, there we go. And I figure after this you you're not going to go out uh, uh cross country skiing. Uh, every, it seems like every, every, you know, you you did three miles yesterday on skis, right? Yeah. Yeah. Peg. Um, it was actually a little bit later than what I wanted to, but, um, uh, I did get over to Lovelace park right up here on, um, uh, Crawford and Glenview road. And the, the trail was, you know, it's one mile around the lake. Um, so I did, I did three, three laps and I got home and I went for a swim and I was all set for a, 
a big bowl of pasta and meat sauce and a glass of red Zinfandel. There's nothing like there's nothing like treating yourself after a hard day's work, right? <laughs> I guess. And it's then not... the fridge went out. And then the fridge, you know, the fridge had already gone out. Um, oh. That's why. I, that's why I had two two glasses of wine, not just one. <laughs> <laughs> I thought yeah. maybe when you said you you went for a swim, it was in Lake Michigan uh, with all the the pepperoni uh, shapes uh, uh, in the lake. The, 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 yes. No, the, actually, I, the, the, I the pizza went, ice. The pizza ice. <laughs> The pizza yeah. ice instead uh, of the pancake ice. Yeah, yeah. It, it kind of flattened out a little because the wind the wind pushed out of the northwest. I was actually down at the lakefront this morning. Uh, I went down to Northwestern because when I went over to Lighthouse Beach, um, there was an Evanston cop there. I'm like, really? You're not going to allow us to take our dogs down to the beach because you're not allowed on the beach. Um, so literally, the Evanston cop will give you a ticket if you take your dog to Lighthouse Beach which a lot of people do, but it's a beautiful, you know, it's a beautiful beach to enjoy uh, walking is, with your dog. And a lot of, a lot is, that of people a COVID, is that a COVID restriction or uh, something else? No, no, no. Anytime you take your dog down to the beach um, in Evanston on leash or off leash, um, it's basically a $75 fine. Um, and what most people, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. They're like, they're like the, uh, the dog beach Nazis there. Um, but <laughs> the thing about the thing about lighthouse beach, which is right at the end of central, you know, right where the, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that building the campus. Yeah. Right north of the campus there. Um, it's one of the, it's one of the better beaches to unleash your dog and let him run because, um, there's dunes behind it and there's no real, um, exit for the dogs to get back into the parking lot. So a lot of people do it. And sure enough, the cop shows up and he just basically gives you um, a donation to the city of Edmondson for about 50 bucks. Holy in reverse. smoke. Yes, of, oh, yeah. of, of course. I had no idea because, uh, you know, that's yeah. where people like to yeah. take their dogs is to beaches. It's a good place to have them run. And, 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 and the interesting side note here is that the high lake levels totally took out Dog Beach. So there's, yeah. no, there's no beach for the dogs yeah. now. So a lot of the dog beaches the are now gone. Took, yeah, a lot of dog beaches are now gone, or if they're like maybe a foot wide of sand. So mm-hmm. I took my dog over to um, Northwestern University where there's no cops there, and he was able yeah. to enjoy it. And um, <laughs> as Peg was alluding yeah. to about the pancake ice and the pizza ice, which is how this conversation started two minutes ago, uh, the wind's out of the Northwest. So all the ice along the lake has now been pushed out into the middle of the, um, of the lake. And we're now up mm-hmm. to... Last I checked, we're up to almost 30% ice coverage. Wow. Um, Lake Erie, yeah, Lake Erie is now pushing almost 60. And the mm-hmm. south end of Lake Michigan, literally from downtown all the way to uh, Benton Harbor, completely frozen over. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's, been, it's been quite a change. And the openness mm-hmm. of the lake right now, the fact that it's still 90% open, is going to allow us to get a significant lake effect snow event around here tomorrow night and then to Monday. Wow. So the can, can I add one more quick ice, ice thing too? Yeah, go ahead. The shelf ice. The shelf ice that's formed everywhere, especially with the other ice now moving out. I see a lot of people up on it and it's totally hollow underneath. And it's it's pretty, <laughs> but yeah, that, that would be me. <laughs> oh dear. Um, you gotta you gotta know where to walk. Okay. Yeah. So as long as you're able to um, as, as long as you're able to know where to stand without it being, you know, brittle, you're, you'll be okay. But yeah, bottom line is you don't want to go to the edge. 
Because if you fall if you fall off A, you'll freeze in the water like that, and then B, no one will see you, and C, no one will will hear you help. So yeah. two ways you could die very quickly: go to the edge of the ice, and that'll be it. Yeah. Holy smoke! But now I hope, uh, I, I hope I didn't give anybody ideas, right? <laughs> no. No, no, I hope not. I don't. Please don't give anybody ideas. No. Uh, uh, all comments are Rick DeMille. You may write to Rick DeMille. I will send you his email address and uh, and his yeah. private cell so let, number, and you can call him. Let's 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 go over some of the low temperatures this morning, shall we? Yeah. Um, because Burr. well, minus, you know, I, go ahead. But I was just going to say that then we can get to the point where I shoveled everything uh, like five neighbors yesterday and then uh, another inch and a half came down afterward and uh, all my work was for naught, but we'll get to that it's later. It's part of your cross-training plan, Mike. Yeah, I, I, it is. It's, I didn't have yeah. to get on the bicycle yesterday because I shoveled so much. So, All right, uh, talk about the low temperatures today. Um, so, well, let, well, since we talked about snow there, 3.2 inches of snow at O'Hare, um, now 11.3 for the month, um, 6.7 so far for the year, which is remarkable because we're how, now how much? 11, 36.7. Isn't that amazing? Wow. Peg? Yeah. The, the, the normal, yeah. The, the normal is 25 and we blew past, you know, the snow drought, you know, we couldn't, we couldn't buy a mm-hmm. snowflake and now it's not only for sale, but it's on a closeout. <laughs> it's like, it's like here. um, yeah, so we're um, we're we're actually uh, 11 inches above normal, and this time last year we were at 16, uh, and we're going to add to it not only tonight but into as well. So I wouldn't be surprised if we're probably up over 40 inches uh, by the time we get to Tuesday. Um, this morning's low temperature at O'Hare was minus five; didn't even come close to the record, which was like I think 11 or 12 below zero. But today's high temperature. If we don't make it above eight degrees, it'll be the coldest high temperature ever for the 14th of February. So um, even if we don't, even if we didn't break the record low, which we didn't this morning, um, we will without a doubt be the high temperature ever. And to to put it fairly, even though eight above is a cold temperature, if you look anywhere after or before that, our afternoon low temperatures, you know, for the highest low temperatures ever, are like zero to one below. So this this one is going to be an easy one to break. Um, mm-hmm. But minus three at Northerly Island, minus three at Midway, six below at uh, Romeoville, six below at Rockford, uh, seven below up in Waukegan, uh, eight below at Aurora. And you're thinking, usually Aurora Airport out in Sugar Grove and everybody else, but that's only when there's no wind. So when there's wind, which is what we had last night, the horizontal movement of the the air is basically the same every uh, so eight below at Aurora, um, minus six up at Wheeling, uh, minus eight at DeKalb, minus nine at Rochelle, minus 11 at Shabana. So everybody about minus five to about minus 10. But what's really, uh, really impressive, Mike and Peg, is the snow depth. I mean, we have gone mm-hmm. from a little bit of snow to a lot of snow, and now we're piling it up. So whatever yep. snow is out there, when it does begin to melt in about a week and a half, there's probably about two inches of water in that, and we're going to add to it as well. On top of that, the ground is frozen solid. So we're talking anytime we get into some warmer weather with some rain, uh, we're talking some flooding. But let me go through some of the snow depths here. Uh, 13 at Aurora, 15 at Barrington, 13 officially at O'Hare, 
I got about 16 in my backyard and 19 in DeKalb. So there is a lot of snow on the ground uh, just about everywhere in the Midwest. And as I mentioned, um, it's only going to get, you know, worse from a standpoint of snow depth. Well, the the thing is, though, if you live in the city and some of the suburbs, um, it's not about the actual snow depth. It's about the depth of the piles where you've shoveled it. And some of those right. are, are five, or six. it's been plowed. Yeah, I saw right. a very funny little sign uh, not uh, just a few blocks away from here. They had de- declared it a mountain, and they put estimated height five foot seven inches or whatever, and they, they put a little flag on the top of the mound, which was <laughs> next to the driveway where they had shoveled. So this is now we're starting to get to the point where it's hard to find places to put the snow when you're shoveling it. Right. Yeah, um, and, and, you know, this is something that, you know, you pull into a parking lot like a gas station or a Jewel. Um, think about the airports, right? Where are they going to put the snow? Um, it's piled on pot, on top of piles. But most of the snow has been fairly easy to manage. It's been very light, very fluffy. Um, early in the week on Monday, we had four inches of snow with 0.08 inches of water. That's a 40 to 1 ratio, which is remarkable. And then even the snow that we had Yesterday was about a 25 to 1 ratio, and with the lake effect snow coming back at us late tonight and tomorrow, it'll be another 25 to 1 ratio. So here we got that really dense, heavy snowpack underneath all this light stuff, um, and uh, it's, it's basically when you have Arctic air. Now, even though we've been about 5 to 10 below, I was looking at temperatures yesterday in northern Wisconsin, 27 below, uh, a couple of places up in northern Minnesota. 42 below, and also up and around the uh, North Dakota area, 42 below. The good news, the good news, and it's really great news, this is the last day of the Arctic air from a standpoint of being impacted by the polar vortex. Now, it's funny because you really haven't heard the word polar vortex a lot, but it's there. It's literally right over southern Canada. It just hasn't moved south. So, again, even on the edge of that polar vortex, which is why – We've been getting all of this. Uh-oh. Let's see if he pops back in. Rick, turn off your video. Doop, doop. Go into the kitchen where the, where the modem is. That's what I would tell him. Because it's, it's just getting good. We're the end of the polar yeah, vortex. so I think he was going to say, even though it, it's cold, it's not as cold as it could have been. Yeah. Because it uh, hasn't moved. Well, this, I, I actually heard from a... Um, uh, pu- the publisher up in in Twin Cities, and she said it was really cold up there. Well, as he up just said, it was uh, yeah, it was it was nasty. Rick, <laughs> this is, Rick, turn you off know, your video. And, and this is going to make Dan Costa really unhappy because this. Ha- oh no, not Dan. Because Dan, it, well, Dan is sick and tired of shoveling snow. He says. I know, but it was Pat Scatch who wrote to me, and Pat is a weather guy as well. And he said, um, "I want to hear the forecast." Uh, did. Uh, did you grab one there, Peggy? Can you grab one from the National Weather Service? Uh, if I'm, I'm texting Rick, let me let me go find the. Um, Tell him to go into the kitchen. Yeah, the refrigerator might not work, but uh, I'm sure the, the the router and the modem does. But uh, all right, we need. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to. I will then while you're doing that, I will go. If I have to, I'll go to Skilling. Up. Are, are we back? We're back, Rick. Okay, where where were we? <laughs> uh, you were saying you said the po- even though the polar vortex is up there, 
It hasn't moved as yeah, much. We were at the right. end of the polar vortex. Okay. So even though the polar vortex has been over southern Canada, it hasn't moved southward. And if I remember what I'm saying, okay, two years ago when we got really cold at the end of January, the polar vortex is right over the top of us. Yeah. And we had a high of 10 below and we had a low of 23 below. But yeah. when it's right over yeah. you, you're so cold that you don't have any clouds. We've been on the southern edge of this polar vortex, and those waves have been allowing us to get cloudy snow, sunny cold, cloudy snow, sunny cold. But today is the last day where the polar vortex is pushing some of that real dense, cold polar air mm -hmm. or Arctic air south. Tomorrow it begins to get dislodged off to the east, and now we'll begin to see a storm track come in from the west-southwest. So the cold air is going to ease, but, man, the storm track – becomes very, very active over the next two to two and a half weeks. Uh-oh. So we more snow uh, uh, potentially on the way? Yeah. Well, I think the best way to say it is more precipitation. Okay. Um, some of that will be snow. Some of that could be rain. Like I mentioned, uh, next week it looks like we warm up into the low to mid-30s. But if you looked at some of the maps I sent you in a PDF, the entire state of Texas is under a winter storm watch. And what's hilarious is – Winter storm watches are not winter storm watches up here mm -hmm. in Illinois as Texas. So Houston's expecting one to two inches of snow, and they're actually telling people what to make sure you have in your car in case you get stranded. <laughs> Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, hilarious. but they can't handle it. Yeah, but I'll tell the you, road uh, crews can't handle it. Kathleen's brother in Oklahoma, just south of, he's in Norman, Oklahoma. Uh, just south of That's Oklahoma, they, they're getting uh, they're getting twelve inches of snow in Oklahoma. And, right. and wasn't there right. ice in Texas yesterday? Oh yeah, they, well they've had two different ice storms in the last couple of weeks in Texas. But Norman, Oklahoma, as as hot as it gets during the summertime, they can have brutal winters. They are totally different than even Dallas sometimes. I mean, mm. to me, northern Oklahoma, Norman, Oklahoma is is like comparing. Chicago, St. Louis, and comparing Norman to Dallas, okay? St. Louis gets like 15 inches of snow a year. Dallas gets maybe four or five. Norman, Oklahoma can easily get 20 or 30 sometimes during a good winter. But they get a lot more in the way of ice than we do with the way that, that Arctic air gets shoved south, and you get that Gulf of Mexico air pushing northward. But the bottom line is you look at the number of states underneath winter storm watches and warnings, and I've never seen this many. It, it really is remarkable. And again, it's all due to Arctic air. A couple of days ago, Albuquerque was in the mid-50s. Right now, they're nine above with 50-mile-an-hour winds and a quarter wow. mile because the Arctic air finally made it over the mountains and has pushed mm -hmm. west of the Colorado Divide. Um, so this is going to be something that just about everybody is going to be dealing with for the next um, probably week to a week and a half. It seems like the only place with this nice weather Southern half of Florida in the low to mid 80s. And you saw if you were watching the um, AT&T Pro-Am out in Pebble Beach yesterday, you know, right along the coast of California, the weather has been pretty good. So literally 46 out of the 48 states are enduring this Yikes. winter grip. Yikes. All right. Yeah. Here's the question I have before we get to the forecast, which is sure. we it sounds to me like and, and I'm going back to some of the other years where we've had situations like this where we got a lot of snow a lot of cold and then all of a sudden we got rains and warm temperature and all the water melted at the same time are we setting up for flooding in the midwest um i'd have to go back and look at what march of 2015 was like 
because February 2015 was much colder than this February. So far, we're about seven degrees below normal, and we've gotten about, um, what, about 11 inches of snow. February 2015, we were eight degrees below normal. We had eight days below zero that month. This month, we'll have three, and that's only because we had two days or two hours last night of below zero. But I'd have to go back and look at the pattern in March of 2015. I'll have to get back to you on that one. But I don't, I don't see us getting into a wet pattern anytime soon, and that's mainly due to La Nina. La Nina has really cooled down the eastern sections of the Pacific Ocean. So there's absolutely zero subtropical influence right now, which, again, why when you get into a pure La Nina event, you could take that jet stream and dip it down. Um, if there is any sort of a, of a subtropical influence, it would only be brief because then you would be pulling moisture up off the Gulf. But to truly get your, your super-duper long-term, you know, uh, 10 to 12-day event of flooding, it's not just the rain, but it's the warm afternoons and the warm overnight lows. And I don't, I don't see that kind of pattern setting up, which is good. We don't want that because there's nothing worse than having all this beautiful snow go away um, before you can truly enjoy it. I mean, like I, I mentioned the pig, I went on cross-country ski last night. I love it. This is great stuff. I'm, I'm just worried about all of it melting at the same time. and, and yeah, cause... I, don't, I, don't see that, I don't see that happening anytime soon. Okay. All right. Well, well give it, yeah. by the way, I just took a screenshot because um, I'm thinking of this image of you and wondering whether Skilling would ever put on that kind of a hat and 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 get on uh tv but probably not but <laughs> is that better all right <laughs> all right you yeah. did that last night wait wait, wait 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 hold hold on all right there's the screenshot all right i got that there we go all right thanks oh dear <laughs> okay give us a forecast yeah, just, here don't send it to the terrorist watch list i'll be like <laughs> i'll be stopped over here at midway you can't come in um all right, so uh, by the way, even though we're under a wind chill advisory up until noon, we're under a winter storm watch in Cook County. So mm-hmm. Lake County, Cook County, Lake County, Illinois, or Lake County, Indiana, um, could get some lake effects snow tonight, but I'm thinking three to maybe six inches of snow. I don't, I don't like the fact that they put out a winter storm watch, put out a lake effect snow advisory. I think people know what that means, because when you hear winter storm watch, you think big storm. But yeah. they've kind of gone away from the lake effect snow advisories. I don't know why. We're okay with them, you know. So, again, um, I'm going to say it this way. Lake effect snow advisory. I'll probably get in trouble for that. Um, nah. For Cook County. Not on this show. So we, we, we can easily see three to six inches of snow by tomorrow afternoon into Tuesday morning. And then it looks like it's all over with by Tuesday morning after that. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, temperatures back up into the low to mid-20s. And maybe another storm system by the time we get into um, uh, Friday morning. Looks like another one coming up from the south. But again, that's still four or five days away. Uh, But the bottom line is this was the coldest morning out of this cold wave. And I guarantee you it will be the coldest morning so far this month. And when's the next time you see us above 32 degrees? Um, Let's see. 14, 21, 23, about the 24th or 25th of February. Wow, that's a yeah. that's a pretty good spell there of uh, cold weather. Yeah, we'll, we'll end up probably being in the top ten coldest Februarys of all time. 
which is remarkable considering what we did for November, December, and January. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. like this. Yeah, we're getting we're getting used to that, right? Well, it was so weird to have such a warm start to the winter, and then all yeah. of a sudden the bottom dropped out. So, Got all to right, the edge of the ice, hey. the ice shelf. Yep, exactly. Right, I'm I'm okay with winter beginning on on January 28th every year. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll see if we can make that happen. Yeah, but the problem is I don't want it to last into the end of March either. So, uh, yeah, I know. I or it. April. I or and we or, we change times on March 14th. So. You know what, Peg? I'm I'm glad, Peg. I'm glad you brought up April because, um, do you know the last two Aprils we've had more snow than the previous mm-hmm. Decembers of that year? Isn't that crazy? Yeah. yeah, it's been it's it's been absolutely nuts. Um, and speaking of nuts, I got to feed my squirrels. They're looking in the window. <laughs> okay, thanks, Rick. We will see you <laughs> next week. Take care, buddy. Hopefully, I won't scare them. Right. Uh, 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 they might let uh, you might you might actually okay uh that, <laughs> okay so uh i guess that that kind of wraps it up so we do this right uh, i want to thank everybody on the show today uh trevor edmondson alexis smith nigel Pittman, uh charlie nardozzi nardozzi uh, meteorologist Rick DeMaio, uh, now on the... Uh, all the all the sparrows. Uh, all the sparrows in my yard, and Rick DeMaio on the no-fly list now. I uh, want to thank uh, Basil for his contributions to the show. I haven't Ooh. seen haven't seen Legata. Kathleen ducked out to hear somebody uh, on a concert someplace, but that's okay. She helped out. So uh, until next time, go green or... Go home. Stadler? Yeah, what? Is that it? Yes, it's over. How'd you like it? I don't know. I slept through the whole thing. Well, you didn't miss much. (laughs) 